Hello, and welcome to NeuroCurious, a podcast about all things brain, body, mind, and culture, not necessarily in that order. I'm Deborah Budding, and I am here today with two amazing women that I'm going to introduce you to. So first, we have Alfie Breland Noble, who like, I can't even begin to go into your resume because I'm just going to like fangirl all over you. <laughs> so um, I'll, let you, <laughs> I'll let you go through your CV. <laughs> Briefly, and then we'll go into her. Uh, our other guest, Jennifer Cass, is here as well, and we'll go into her background briefly, and then we're just gonna talk about a bunch of different things. All right, so Alfie, awesome. Okay, so it is a pleasure to be here with Deborah. Finally, I think she's awesome. Like, we've been like fangirling over each other on Twitter for like years, and now we finally get to meet. So thank you, Twitter. Um, but briefly, my name is Alfie Breland Noble. I go by Dr. Alfie. I have a little joke I tell about who calls me Dr. Alfie and who doesn't, but I'll skip that for today. So Deborah, you call me Alfie. Jen, you call me Alfie, please. Um, and I, I like to say where I went to school because I feel like it's sort of important, especially for teenagers, for them to have a vision because I'm an African-American woman. So I like them to have a vision for what is possible. So I went to HBCU for undergrad, Howard University. I went to NYU for a master's, University of Wisconsin-Madison for a PhD, and then I got a second master's in clinical trials from Duke. Mm-hmm. School I actually got it from the School of Medicine. And I'm a health disparities researcher. So what I'm most interested in is trying to understand something very specific and kind of tiny called treatment engagement. Like essentially how do we get African American and other young people of color, African American and black, into treatment. And my other area of interest is really depression. Yeah. So recognizing signs and symptoms of depression, helping community members, people out there, consumers, patients, um, recognize depression in teenagers because I do think it looks a little different across different populations, um, although there are some universal symptoms. Um, and for other young people of color, how do we reduce some of those barriers um, to yes. care? The, you know, the barriers to entry piece is so huge. I mean, also access to yes. people of color for yes. for services is, yes. a, is a whole other thing, too. Yes, yes, I'm interested in all that. So. That, and currently, I'm at Georgetown University in the Department of Psychiatry. Before that, I was at Duke in Psychiatry. Before that, I was at Michigan State, which a lot of people don't know because it was so long ago in my career. Um, and I love, 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 love clinical research. Um, I have been funded a while by a couple different organizations. And that's me. You're just so impressive. Oh, thank it's you. Just, it's nice to hear from you woman, are. someone I respect. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. I, I, honestly. <laughs> I appreciate it. I really do. I really do. One of the things I also want to make sure to mention is uh, your interfacing with faith communities. Yes. Too. Yes. Because I think that is, in, in particular, in people of color and yes. black communities, I think it's a super important thing in a way that it is not Yes. in dominant community. I mean, not yes. that it isn't important at all, of but course. it's different. Of course. Right? Yeah. So, so the work that we do with black faith communities really was an outgrowth. We started in this community-based participatory space and we just sort of open to any kind of community-based organization and really what ended up happening I have this wonderful woman she's like a sister to me like a big sister to me her name is Kathy Williams and Kathy um, is a suicide survivor so she lost a loved one to suicide many years ago and you know she gets invited to churches all the time and so probably about 11 years ago she and I partnered, and then I just started getting getting invited to churches with her, where we just really give talks to raise awareness. Yep. And it's amazing how much raising awareness, she's also African-American, two black women talking about depression and suicide as issues relevant for black people and people of color. Right. That alone really sort of reduces the barriers a little bit. Right. people can see It reduces the stigma, yes, right? right? Because it. because it's it's real, we can talk about That's it, right. you don't right. have to be ashamed. That's right. That's right. And they see right. someone who looks like them, who they can relate to, and she has a real thick southern accent. She's from North Carolina. So just hearing somebody relatable. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's a beautiful woman and just, you know, I think it helps a lot. So that's how we sort of were sort of guided into faith-based mental health promotion and we have really sort of stayed there so we continue to work with churches we're working on some research right now uh with faith communities and i i really appreciate that you value it because i think for a lot of people they kind of don't get it like right. why would you need to go to a church to talk about mental health but that's where people are that's where people are yeah that's where you get access yes that's right? exactly right and it's access access is so important that's right um all right so jennifer cass so I'm Jennifer Cass. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Um, I'm a clinical director of neuropsychology at Nationwide Children's Hospital, affiliated with Ohio 
State University, so I largely focus, you know, my work on a few different areas, but, you know, kind of administratively just kind of helping our, you know, department run and, you know, working on access to care for neuropsychology-related services, um, and then also um, involved in, in providing direct clinical care and then also a lot of training. Um, so we have graduate students and interns and fellows that work with us, so I'm involved in that way. Yeah, that's a lot of work. Man, the admin, like I give you props <laughs> for doing administration. Yes. Seriously. Yes. Like it we is, all know I cannot a have a boss. Like it's like <laughs> we all know that that is like it is cannot happen. And the people who work in administration and get those things running, I think yeah. I, I you know, it is hard and it's a lot of work, but I think, you know, in our hospital psychology in general is very well respected and oh. so if it gives you a voice and you can make a lot, you know, a lot of growth and programs and development and really have, you know, you're in this medical setting, but have physicians and hospital leadership really listen to what direction you think things should go. And we're, we're in a unique situation um, because we were fortunate to get a $15 million donation from Big Lots. Holy smokes. So I was unaware of that. Now our department's called Big Lots Behavioral Health and neuropsychology is like this tiny speck within the service line of behavioral health. Um, You know, we're really small, but, you know, with that donation, we're building a brand new building that's going to serve the more acute psychiatric needs. So, um, you know, suicidality and having an inpatient psychiatric unit, um, youth crisis stabilization unit, and then intensive outpatient mm-hmm. treatment programs. Um, so that's a huge, I mean, I don't know that there's any other hospital in the country that's invested that much um, in terms of behavioral health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or children's hospital, I guess. Awesome. Right. Awesome. So, so it's a really exciting time to be you know, where we're at. Right. Well, and also, we all share the being in the, the general pediatrics realm, yes. working with children and adolescents. That's right. Um, and I think it's been certainly a neglected area yes. for within psychology, for sure. Yes. Um, and it, adolescent mental health is increasingly important. I mean, we're, we're speaking a day after there was yet another school mm-hmm. shooting. You can say, oh, which one? You know, um, but I think the particular challenges that teens face mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. compared to, I mean, back in the day, mm-hmm. is it's, it's almost overwhelming mm-hmm. to think about, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the, the matter of access points becomes super important mm-hmm. with that. I mean, mm-hmm. working in a hospital setting um, is interesting to me because you've got people whose first contact a lot of times is for a medical issue, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got secondary psychiatric stuff that comes up around it mm-hmm. but then it also gives you an in mm-hmm. into sort of then a larger you know family systems and people who maybe don't have medical issues mm-hmm. themselves but are people with medical issues adjacent who have mm-hmm. mental health issues and it makes it more um available isn't exactly the word i'm looking for mm-hmm. but but at least there's some familiarity mm-hmm. with it because there's still a fair amount of stigma with teens mm-hmm. I mean, in some kind of in some communities, it's like you know you're born with a therapist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. That's but right. but in a lot of communities, that is not the case, mm-hmm. um, and it's difficult to even kind of get in there and, and talk about mental health issues and openly and directly. Yeah, I, I think you're 100 percent correct, and I think when I look at you, touched on so many really important and timely things, and it's one of the reasons I think you're awesome. But I think it's you know among many, but. I, I really was struck by every time there is another one of these horrible school shooting tragedies, I'm always waiting for the conversation about untreated mental illness. Right. Because I feel like it's always mm-hmm. going to come up. And so I think what I try to do like with my own kids, my kids are middle schoolers, I try to help them steer clear of this idea that just because there's a shooting, automatically there's a mental health problem. Right. Because that's where their, their minds go, oh, here's somebody, they, you know, because they're related to me and they hear me give these talks. Them, that problem, that person had a mental illness that wasn't treated as well. We have to wait and see. Right. And also, mm-hmm. okay, maybe, mm-hmm. but most people with diagnosed mental yes, illness right. are victims and not perpetrators. That's right. And that's right. The, the biggest issue is understanding uh, domestic violence that's right. and access to weaponry. That's right. That's it. That's Those it. are the two main factors. That's right. 
Um, and so whether or not somebody has a, a, an additional mental illness diagnosis in that, I'm not saying it's irrelevant because right. it's not, That's but right. you know, you can somebody with violence problems, a butter knife and the amount of damage they're going to be able to do is, is just not going to be the same. That's right. That's exactly right. And that just, it's so important that, you know, the other thing that it makes me think of though is how many of our young people, when I think about teenagers in particular, because that's who I'm passionate about, the coping skills that our kids don't have. Yeah. Right? So when you talk about all the things that they're exposed to, I couldn't imagine being a teenager in this day and age, right? So the social media, even though that's how we met, social right. media alone. It's not all, it's not all it's bad. It's not all bad, but it's, you have to have a filter for it. You have to be able to manage it. So people sort of, I tell teenagers all the time, what you're seeing on, online is curated. Right. But they're not showing you everything. Right. So the minute before they take that selfie and they're looking like a million a million dollar glamorous, they weren't looking like that an hour before. Right. And they could have taken a selfie then and you would have seen a whole different person. But it's hard, I find, often it's challenging to help teenagers understand that. Yeah, and, and to understand process. Yes. yes. Right? And yes. and conflict resolution. Right? Like there we, we live in this world where Things are are so um, discreet, yes. You know, yes. and people don't have as much access to kind of witnessing process as it unfolds, yes. And how and how things occur in a context. And yes. I was actually when I was at the African American Museum yesterday, mm-hmm. I was really thinking about that, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about the way that that museum is put together so brilliantly. Mm-hmm. It is just. Like words fail me, right? Yes, but it, so, but the amount of contextualization mm-hmm. that happens in that space mm-hmm. is really astounding, mm-hmm. and so things aren't just put, you know, blip, blip, blip out of mm-hmm. out of any context. Things are all put in relation to mm-hmm. each other mm-hmm. and into the larger world, and it it makes things more understandable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's to me anyway. That's one of the things that that kind of as a larger culture needs to happen more often, that, that things need to be contextualized I, for people. I agree 100%. I think for me, the most striking thing, and we talked about it just a little bit, um, is when you go into the museum and you start where you start, and I don't know if it's the same way, but when we went, it was last August, you start, you get in the elevator and you keep going down, down, mm-hmm. and the time goes backwards. To me, that's context, yeah. right? We are taking you back, and, and you're physically going back in time going down on that elevator Mm -hmm. and then when you come out you're in this space a long time ago right and I think they're trying to set the tone for you so you understand it's still real we want you to feel some teeny tiny portion of what people felt like right all those years ago and the maps where you get to see all the different points that people points of entry yes but you know honestly I was I was walking I was walking around and I had to like go find little like Dark areas, yes. So people wouldn't see me crying. Yes, when I was, there. Uh, I was bawling. You know, but yes. sir, it's so intense. Yes, you know, and and I think for that reason, sometimes, especially for you know, with dominant culture people, yes. I think it can be a little overwhelming yes. to consider going. You know, because I can't yes. tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are like, yeah. "Well, I didn't know it's ladies, why you Good on you, right? You know? But right. there's this like intimidation yes. portion. I wish I could. Like if I had a magical power, yeah. well, one I want to be invisible, but two, <laughs> the other one would be to take that away f- from yeah. people. You know that kind of yes. that that I don't know if it's shame or yes. guilt or whatever because yes. it's so damaging. Yes, yes. Because then it prevents people from just listening. Yes, and I know? think the same thing is true. It's so interesting how all these things overlap with each other. I think sometimes that shame and that fear is what causes people to not be able to resolve conflict, especially with yes. our teenagers, right? Yes. So I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want people to think I'm weak. You know, I, right. especially for a young black and Latino man, I don't want people to think I'm a sucker or, you know, I'm right. weak or I'm pitiful. So I'm just going to, like, be angry. Or right. I'm going to be assertive in not the best way. And right. so I think a lot of times what I find, especially with kids that I treat, is that that is a mask. For like this sadness and this brokenness that's inside of them. And so they don't know how to engage somebody and say, I don't like what you said. You hurt my feelings. Like what we teach little babies. Use right. your words. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. Right. Don't do that to me. And it's like somewhere between like preschool and third grade, all that stuff goes right out the window. Right. 
right? So yeah, and that it's male culture in general too, yes. and then it's and it's even in, more intensified in people of color because yes. of the, the systemic issues yes. around. But I can see I have I have boy babies, yes. you know, and I, you know, I'm watching as they have to put on that yes. tough guy yes. mask to survive, yes. Yes. and and it, everybody loses. Yes. I agree. Everybody loses, um, but it's also because there isn't a good language for people to talk about that doesn't end up being put into like a hierarchy. That's right. Right? Doesn't make you feel weak. I mean, I know women who don't like talking about feelings either because it makes them feel weak. I mean, yes. it's not like it's totally gendered, but yes. but certainly there's a larger percentage of men who end up dealing with it that way. I agree. Um, and with couples too, right? Mm-hmm. You see people, you know, we were talking about domestic violence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of that is people don't know how to deal with their feelings and with their negative emotions mm-hmm. and then things get bad. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, some of it is we just, I feel like, honestly we'll give credit to millennials because I do feel like they're willing to talk about these things in a yeah. different way and a little bit more openly than I separately would say for, I'm Gen X. I would say for my generation, we didn't talk about that stuff. And I know yep, generations same. before me, you don't discuss this stuff. So I will I will absolutely give credit to millennials for that. And I also think with that, though, what my hope is that I would see people opening the conversation and then finding ways to try to create some ideas about resolution, right? Because right. I feel like it's hard to just sort of open the wound and sort of leave it. Right, right. Because right. then wish, you're just venting. Right, right. right. But what I, what I wish I would see more of is people really talking about how have I fixed it? So there's this one person I follow on uh, Twitter, and I was I just was elated. Her name is uh, Francesca Ramsey. Oh yeah, yes. Oh, and she t- I she's love so her. cool. Oh my god, I love her. And she tweeted about finding a therapist, and I almost passed out because I was like, Oh, oh yeah, oh my god. <laughs> yes. And then she even tweeted this thing where she said, "You can go to this site. I think the site's called TherapyForBlackGirls.com yeah. or something like that. Dot org." And you can go there and you can find a therapist if you're a woman of color. And I was just like, and like all the retweets and responses that I saw to it, I was like, that, you know what I mean? That's yeah. helping to create solutions. So she's using herself as an example right. and saying, and she's a millennial, I did this thing. It was good for me. And she didn't even say you should do it too. She no. just put the resource out there and people were responsive. So I wish I could see more of that. Definitely. But, you know, instead of just the venting. Right. Well, also with this latest school shooting, yes. one of the things that has kept me from completely despairing is seeing the teenagers involved and the things they're talking about where they're basically saying, look, we are not putting up with this. This is not acceptable. Right. What are you going to do about it? They are, they are speaking up and, and being so mature and how they're talking about it. I'm like, Oh, yes. When can you run for office? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, it's that really was such a, like a, I can't even call it a silver lining because there is no silver lining right. to be found. Right, right. But right. but at least a positive thing. Yes. To see. Yeah, definitely. This this whole idea of resilience and the way that even like the kids who are younger than millennials, they seem so much more savvy. Yeah. So much more quickly. Like I didn't have that kind of I didn't have those faculties about me when I was seventeen, eighteen. I was like, Ugh. you know, right. kind of like goofy. I did not have it figured out, and I think. Something, some of the social media sort of forces them to be that way because they're exposed to so much more. Money. Right. You know, so much more, so much earlier, and so much more consistently. So yeah. they're in front of this stuff all the time because even when I was a little bit, because I tried to limit how much I watched the news because it can be a little traumatizing. Right. right. But watching how poised they were in front of the television cameras, I'm thinking, and you just came out of that school, and how were you this calm? I'm still barely poised in front of television cameras. Oh, my gosh. I mean, oh, my gosh. Like, I hate no. having my picture taken. Oh, my gosh. Like, so, I, I like having mine taken. So <laughs> well, yeah, but you should. <laughs> because you look like you. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. But it's like, they just seem part of And there was a little part of me that was kind of like, give these kids some room to process. Yeah. Right? Like, get out of their faces with those cameras. I know you're trying to get a story, but it's like... Back mm-hmm. off a little. Right, give them some space. Yeah, they, they need a little space to process what they're going through. So I agree with you. I like how vocal and out front and really take charge these young people are. And they have really good ideas. And my thing is always, I did a talk at Yale, I think it was last weekend. And we were talking about this issue came up of uh, taking care of your mental health when you're an activist. And super so important. Many, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super important. That was a new thing to me. You know, so yeah. hearing these young people say, like, we really need this. But then it was interesting because I got in a conversation with a young lady 
and she was grieving about something. I didn't know what. But in the course of having a conversation about her grief, the only thing she wanted to engage me about was what can I do to get my campus aware about the mental health thing. Do you know what I mean? So she right. like like sort of jumped over the grief kind of yeah. and went right to what can I do? And that kind of that's what worries me. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, but part of that is helping people understand the grief process too. And that, you know, and trauma, right? So oh, that reminds me. So so your project, mm-hmm. like like we haven't talked specifically mm-hmm. about that mm-hmm. and about trauma in the mm-hmm. community. So mm-hmm. would you take a few moments and give an overview sure. of the project? Yeah, sure. So I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. So the Coma Project is this long acronym. It took it me is. forever to figure it out. It and I was like, is it is it a coma? Yeah. Is it You're acoma? Right. Like, how a coma. am I going to? You got how it. How do I pronounce that? You correctly? got it. Okay. It's a coma. And so I added an extra A so I could fit African American in there. But a coma is a West African a dinka symbol, and the symbol is actually a heart, and it really just means tolerance, right? So, but it's not tolerance as in like I will deal with you kind of side eye right. tolerance. I'll put up with you. Exactly, I guess. exactly. <laughs> it's not that. It's more having a full heart, so you can take in a lot, mm-hmm. you can hold a lot in your heart, um, which really spoke to me. So, the Coma Project um, African American Knowledge Optimized for Mindfully Healthy Adolescents, and it really was an outgrowth of my experiences watching black teenagers in particular in particular not have outlets for what they were dealing with right yep. so the stress that can include trauma that can include depression and anxiety that result from trauma or not um you know there's these genetic factors and hereditary factors around um depression and anxiety and i really wanted to create a, a program of research that would allow us to better understand what these young people's experience is because i feel like there was a, a article that came out two or three days ago in I can't remember the name of the, I think it's called Tonic, which is like a subsidiary of Vice. Mm-hmm. And there's this wonderful Filipina, her name is uh, Melissa Pandinka, who wrote this great article about how depression manifests itself in black kids. And she was talking about the CESD and who the, the population it was normed on. Now, what's and, the CESD for people oh, who don't, I'm so sorry. Who don't I'm know sorry. psychology? Thank you. Thank you. I'm so sorry. Um, the Center for Epidemiologic Studies Depression Measure. Um, y'all correct me if I said anything wrong. Um, but it really is just a way to screen for depression. Mm-hmm. So she was looking at some research, and I, I promise I'll get back to a coma, but she was looking at some research that talked about, um, there was a, there's some colleagues from, I think, Ohio, who did a recent study that looked at about 750 African-American kids from um, very impoverished communities, uh, a couple housing projects in four different cities. And what they found was the factor structure for the CESD looked different and it loaded on the two factors. One factor was uh, somatic, mm-hmm. and one was interpersonal. And so what they surmised was that the way African-American kids express depression is through complaining about physical ailments or interpersonal problems. So it wasn't, you know, the more traditional, I think it's a four-factor Like there's not co- there's the cognitive or that's whatever, right. but something around cognitive that's right. being less that's right. elevated. That's right. That's right. So with the coma, what we try to do is build on that perspective. What is it that's unique about the experience of depression? And we've added anxiety as the years have gone on. In African American and black youth, uh, African immigrant youth and uh, black Caribbean youth, and in some cases black Latino youth, that we can build on to help um, understand better what depression looks like in these kids. And then two, how can we help get them into treatment? So the resilience piece, which I've heard you speak of and I'm very appreciative of, is that's the piece about um, african-american knowledge so that's really about what exists in these communities already that we can build upon to help get kids into treatment because people are doing they're doing something right so we need to learn what they're doing and build on that and that's where the faith piece came in so everybody you know in black communities everybody goes to church or has some affiliation with the church right so we can partner with churches in particular other community-based organizations with black faith communities in particular and get pastors and other clergy folks talking about depression talking about anxiety, talking about mental illness, it's already automatically culturally embedded because right. it's in these Protestant black faith communities. So it, people can hear it a little differently and it may be something will click and they'll say, oh, well, this is coming from the pastor or this is coming from the, the health minister or the youth minister. Maybe I'll listen. So that's really what it's about, building on what already exists in the community to help kids who have been exposed to trauma and who have resulting anxiety and depression and some other things, um, identify that something's wrong, 
know where to go for treatment and then actually get themselves in you guys' chair or my chair to either get some assessment or to get some treatment, to get some help. Right. So and my it. thing is I don't want them to be coming to me. Right. I mean, white lady. Right. I mean, like, if they have to. Right. Like, yes. you know, but, yes. you know I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be a last resort. Yes. I want them to have access to black yes. psychologists right. and people of color. And, right. And so the there's like a bottleneck. Yes. That is just so aggravating to me, yes. you know, where yes. we we have a need, yes. but the kind of the systemic difficulties in terms of you know training, you know, everybody wants to recruit, you know, it's very sexy. We're going to recruit people of color and get them, get them in, right? And then everybody gets in, and they're like, "Oh, we don't know what to do with you." That's right, right? That's right. That is not a leaky pop line. You know? <laughs> That's, That's right. A, that's right. I call it greasy. It's right? got holes in it. They poke a, holes in it, grease, grease it up, and you, you know, get you in, and you just slide, and you fall out. And you're like, hey, what happened? What happened? Yeah. And you're like, wait, so, oh my god, I'm so, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so glad you said it. So two things I'll say. One is what teenagers have told us in our research. They don't care what color the person is. What they really care about is are you genuine. Right. They told us that over and over and over. If you're genuine and you really demonstrate to me that you care about me, I will feel like you can help me. I think the problem is that a lot of times people get intimidated. Right. And they, they, like you were saying earlier about going to the museum, and there are these sort of automatic walls that come up because we're operating, like we're all psychologists, and you know we've all been academics, so we can say this. I think there's this thing about us as academics when we don't know something, we get fearful. Right. And when we get fearful, that wall comes up. Like you get really, you know, don't want to be wrong. Yes, right. That's right. I don't want to show anybody don't any kind of weakness. Offend. That's it. I don't want to offend. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to embarrass myself. And so you get real business like. Yeah. And that, I think, sometimes can be a barrier for some of these kids. They're like, well, what is wrong with you? Like, right. You can't, I know you don't sit with that straight back all the time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I know you don't speak like this every time you're talking. You know what I mean? Like, they know. And so if you're Like, cool, don't ask me how uh, that makes me feel. Yes. Stop asking me that, dude. I just told you this awful thing. What do you, how do you think it makes me feel? Right. You know what I mean? And so right. I think that's part of the issue is that they feel like they can't relate. So that's a part of it. But, you know, the other part of it is I think with this like whole thing of being genuine, if we can demonstrate to young people that we have a vested interest, I'm thinking about this pipeline thing, and getting them in and keeping, and keeping. them. Yeah. What does it mean to keep them, right? So some things have to change if we want to keep our, it's like this whole conversation we have about women yeah. and taking time, like if you want to be a, like a hardcore like researcher, uh, don't take maternity leave. I mean, that's sort of the message that right. we kids. get. Right. That's it. Right. And, and don't don't, don't tell anybody that you oh. ever plan oh. to, to have a maternity leave. No, no. I literally have. But you gotta do that on the down list. That's it. Right. I have stories of girlfriends who have said to me that people have said to them, "You can be a researcher, or you can be a mom. You can't be both." You know, and I just that's horrifying to me. Like, why would you say it? And this is women telling them this. I'm right. Like, oh my god. So, you know, I think we. There are all kinds of ideas about how we can get people in, but we need ideas on how we keep them in. Right. Not only the ideas, but we need practices. So there was this great article. Um, her name is Esther Chu. She's on um, Twitter. Yeah. She showed an article about maternity leave. Like I'm thinking parallel process. Yeah. And about what the, how rampantly different the policies are and how some of it comes down to like asking an individual, like a supervisor. Yeah. Like, you know, like what literally, are you allowed to take? Can you imagine? Yeah. So sure. if, arranging your own clinical coverage. Right. Things like that, I would imagine. Yes. You're a psychologist, yeah. Yeah. So it's tough. You know, so this whole idea of the leaky pipeline, like I, like I said, I like to call it the greasy pipeline with holes. Um, we got to figure out ways to get our young people in and make them want to stay. It right. needs to be a more welcoming environment. I think sometimes it can be hostile. And, yes. And and the the mentoring piece is super important. And But it goes... it. it one of the things that drives me really nutty is how much difficulty people have talking about race yes. in the United States. Yes. I'm like, I can talk about race all day long. I mean, yes. you know, if there's other things I'd like to talk about, like, you know, video games and things. But, like, this is, should not be a difficult thing. Yes. And, but it is. Yes. It is a really difficult thing for, for white people in particular. It is. To talk about. It is. And, uh, you know, if I had a nickel for... <laughs> 
<laughs> black people I know who are told you're the real racist right. because you brought it up. Right. Um, but but I think it comes from people's discomfort, yeah. right? And I'm a I'm a basal ganglia, cerebellum interested person. Yes. So I am interested in habits. Yes. And habit formation. Yes. And you know, details from the environment that we notice or don't notice. Yes. And habits are really hard to change. Yes. Right. Yes. So when you spent your whole life being kind of oriented in a particular way and when you're uncomfortable with something new, I mean, brains don't like new things in general, right? Because new things are dangerous and there's adaptive challenges involved. So, like, I'm not in favor of coddling people per se, mm-hmm. but I also, again, as a white person, mm-hmm. can understand the reluctance that some people have mm-hmm. to talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things I like to do when I'm doing public speaking is to spend some portion of my time talking about the concept of privilege mm-hmm. because it's going to be easier to take from me mm-hmm. than from one of my black colleagues mm-hmm. for a bunch of white people. Mm-hmm. And I know this. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, my feeling is if you have privilege, then you should damn well use it. Like, don't waste your time being guilty about it. Mm-hmm. Right? Be like, woohoo, I have privilege. Mm-hmm. Yay, there's something I can use. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's another way of thinking about it that a lot of white people don't. They get stuck with sort of feeling like they either should be guilty or they do feel guilty, and then stuff gets stuck. Mm-hmm. And you can, it's hard to move forward from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think people just have to be, that's the hard part. It's like there's something that makes people, again, I'm going to come back to millennials. Yeah. This whole idea of millennials entering into our language white supremacy. I'm trying to picture myself even like 20 years ago hearing that right publicly and like people not hey, when people say that they think of hoods right and but now we think now. of trucker hats colored red oh there you go there you go that's it and so this idea that there's something about this generation of millennials where they're able to at least put it on the table yeah and I see it so much more often but I agree with you about the idea of it's almost like it's easier for people to say white supremacy than it is white privilege. Right. Because when you talk about privilege, people don't know. Well, I don't live in a million dollar house. I work I, for everything I have. Yes. I worked hard for that. Yes. Like, no one said you didn't. Yes. My dad just told me he was at a, a get my, he was helping me get my carpet. So he went, because I don't like having other people. So he went, and he was sitting in the lobby waiting, and they got into this conversation about white privilege. Some guy just comes barging in with his trucker hat on and just yammering on about, yeah, because my parents came here from somewhere, you know, 50 years ago and I was born here and they worked for everything. And my dad, because he's my dad, if you ever met my dad, he's like a big, you know, like this big booming voice, big, like six foot two, dark skinned black man from like civil rights generation, Mississippi. And he lost it. You know, he just goes in like, what do you mean? And everything you just said, yeah. do you understand this concept of privilege? Because all of which, of course, he got from me. Because that wasn't the language he would have used you right. know, 20 years ago. He'd have been like saying other stuff that we can't say on the podcast. But, right. um, you know, the guy was just, he said the guy just kind of got real pale and he got really quiet. And he just sort of, he said it, it's almost like he could watch him shrink. Yeah. Because somebody was pointing out to him. And he said he gave him multiple examples. Here are all the ways in which you have privilege. And he sort of broke it down for him. It's like, you can come into this place. And people just assume you need help. They will come talk to you. And like, go right past me. Even if I've been standing at the counter for 10 minutes, you come in, they'll come. That's privilege, dude. Like, and he said the guy just couldn't say anything. And so I think there's something. But he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. Because privilege, the example that I give, it's like, does a fish know it's in water? That's right. Right? That's like, right. Like the when you have privilege, you aren't going to really know it Mm-mm. because you don't have to know it. Mm-mm. And again, there, there's no judgment attached to that. Right. It's just what it is. But the cool thing about knowing when you have it is that you can, that gives you power. That's right. You can use that power. That's right. And you can use it in a way to help people or you can use it in a way to hurt people. Right. I mean, you can choose. Right. Um, but you then know that there's something you can do to help other people. But do you think that people have to, there has to be like a part of them that that's altruistic. Like they have to want to help somebody. Do you think? I, I don't know. That's the part I struggle with. I, you know, I've been going back and forth about this. You know, are people inherently yeah. <laughs> good or not yeah, yeah, since yeah. I was small? Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I was raised Catholic. Yeah. Me so, too. All right. Guilt. Yeah. yeah. We shared a guilt. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, so... I do think that everybody has the evil impulse. I really do. I I, I studied Melanie Klein's work mm-hmm, a lot, mm-hmm. and I think it's super. For me, I mm-hmm. find that work really helpful in understanding 
kind of socio-cultural mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. because envy is real, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Envy is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you want to talk about the role of envy in race issues, mm-hmm. like I can talk about that all day long. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, I do think that there are differing, like everybody's basic neurology is different, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I do think that some people are more prone to focus on negative aspects of the environment okay. than others. Okay. You know, and when mm-hmm. I do neuropsych assessments, that's mm-hmm. one of the things I actually look at mm-hmm. is, okay, is this person more oriented to negative details in the environment mm-hmm. or positive details? Mm-hmm. Because th- there really are differences between people in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that people who are more oriented to positive details in the environment mm-hmm. are also more inclined okay. to be sort of generous mm-hmm. as opposed to being stingy. Mm-hmm. There's a Swedish word. I, when I, I lived in Sweden for a year going to Lund, mm-hmm. and they have this word... You know how different languages have mm-hmm. words that are so perfect? They have this word called snool, mm-hmm. and it, it roughly translates into being kind of grinchy. <gasps> and it's so, per- it's like sounds like it, yes. you know? And so there are some people who tend to be a little more snool, yes. or, yes. right? But to me, that's why austerity measures don't work. Mm-hmm. Because the more threatened people feel, mm-hmm. the less likely mm-hmm. to be generous, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, age-old saying, a rising tide lifts mm-hmm. all boats. I believe in it. Mm-hmm. I really do. And I think when people aren't terrified on a day-by-day basis, mm-hmm. like the whole, like to me, the, the economic anxiety mm-hmm. argument is pretty bullshit mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. our situation mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. But there is a reality to it for everybody, it. right? Mm-hmm. The economic anxiety is a real thing, mm-hmm. um, except for when it's really racism. Mm-hmm. But, but, but when people feel like they have some hope and they feel like they have enough to go around, mm-hmm. then they can afford to be more generous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that that helps me some, because I still, I think for me and a lot of black people, what we struggle with, like in this climate, is like, like I read the New York Times a lot, um, but- Don't every, do that. <laughs> I know, everyone's like, no, leave it alone. <laughs> I just feel like, I feel smart when I read the New York Times, but I don't know, I don't know what that means. But anyway, um, there's this whole argument about a lot of what we're seeing around the current administration and the people who voted for him and that kind of thing comes back to economic anxiety. I think a lot of black people and people of color are like, no, it doesn't. That comes down to race. And so it's hard for people to have the conversation because you've got some people saying, no, it's really about economic anxiety. And the, the people of color are like, no, it's not. It's about people being racist. And so, You can have ticks and fleas. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can at the same time. You know, so it's like, so it's. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, I'm just articulating this idea that it's a struggle to sort of really pull apart. And then it when is. you do try like, to To have... me, it starts with race. Like, I, yes. my thing, in this country anyway, yes. is that race We're taking is, something it, away it, from it, us. Yeah. Yes. It's, it, it completely starts there. Yes. But I do think when people feel more sort of safe yes. economically, yes. they're going to tend to be a little more... I mean, generous isn't even the word, but yes. less less... Yes. Snool, yes. But less snool. Yes. Um, I would love that word forever. Isn't that a good word? It's It's such a good word. It's awesome. Um, I just don't like when arguments try to get sort of distilled down to only one thing. Because it's never only one thing. Right. Um, There's lots of complex ways of looking at things. Yes. Um, But it's really hard to argue against the, the... impact of this underlying current of white supremacy that's been here from the beginning from the beginning that it's never really been faced head on Mm -hmm. and there are there are people who get upset when it's brought up yeah which again doesn't bother me at all right like last i mean you see what i look like right (laughs) nobody's gonna confuse me as anything but a very 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 white lady right um but but for a lot of people in the dominant culture, it it just it shuts everything down. They don't it want to does. Think about it. They can't. The, like the minute you start talking, I don't even care what it is. The minute you name, and I talk to parents about this a lot because I live in an area that you know is, is it is very white and it's relatively affluent. We literally have a street that goes a highway that cuts between the north side and the south side, and the south side is all recent mostly recent immigrants, black and Latino, like African immigrants, Latino immigrants, Central and South American. And the North side is pretty much white. And so when we go to meetings, like we're trying to do these community meetings mm-hmm. to like help the community and, you know, support our community and build it up. The conversation always goes to those folks on the South side. Right. Like, do you know what I mean? And it's I do. Like, 
are you kidding me? Like, this is 2018. And so I think it is hard for people to talk about. They can't disentangle. And a lot of times I'm thinking, I am sitting right here at this table. Like, you know good and well, I am not, I'm not recently immigrated. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not recently immigrated. And you know I'm middle, upper middle class, but you see the car I drove up in because y'all always looking. You see how I'm, <laughs> like, you're paying attention. To all, like, I know you're looking well, at all of it. I mean, to be fair... You are a strikingly beautiful woman. <laughs> Thank you. I, mean, I, mean, I came here for my self-esteem today. Yeah, right. yeah. No, but, but honestly, I mean, there's, you know, you have to acknowledge that piece of it. Yes. But that's but, what they but, yeah. see. And yeah. so I think, but even seeing that, for me, it causes so much cognitive dissonance because you can see me, but still think that people who look like me all come from the South Side. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I do. That kind of stuff, like... I don't, well, I do. I just struggle with it. And I think it, that, those are the kinds of things that really shut the conversation down because you can't have a conversation about economic disparity. The conversation invariably turns to, it's a racial disparity. No, it's, like you said, there's always multiple pieces. There's part multiple of pieces, it is racial. For part sure. Part of it is these families are newly immigrated. They don't have resources. So this is not just about the fact that they're all black and Latino. Right. And they all happen to live on the South Side. Let's talk about zoning. Like, mm-hmm. why do they only live on the south side? Because that's what they can afford. Why can't they afford anything on the north side? Because these houses are ridiculously priced, and I shouldn't well, say that but, where you come from. Well, but. listen, part of it, too, is not about... A lot of people can't afford those places, except they can't get mortgages. There you go. Even so, if they could, they still can't get a mortgage. They still can't get a mortgage. That's the stuff that people don't want to... That's don't privilege. Wanna, right. Well, so this is also what's so interesting, because you know, one thing about looking the way I look mm-hmm. is that... People are going to say different things mm, if mm, I'm sitting in that chair mm, than if you're sitting in that, that chair. Right. That's right? right. That's right. And you should, I mean, the froggy things people think it's okay to say around oh, me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. It's, just, it's <laughs> I know it's horrifying it's, sometimes. I know. And I, I really work hard. Jen, you know this. I work hard on my impulse control. Mm-hmm. Right? I do. I, I really, <laughs> there are a lot of things I don't say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But one of the things about being, you know, a middle-aged lady at this yeah, point yeah. is I care less Girl, about yes. upsetting say people. It. Yeah, say right? it. Say so, it. Yes. But that, if it works out that I don't get invited as many places, it's, it's fine by me. I don't need yes. the blood pressure medicine uptake. Yes. Right? So, yes. But, but, so on the one hand, when people say, like with, with white folk, we need, to, yes. we need to go and we need to try to engage yes. people and talk with them. Yes. I am fully in favor of that. Yes. But I'm also fully in favor at a certain point of saying, you are obviously a hopeless cause. That's right. And I'm walking away from my mental health. That's right. That's right. Right? That's and right. And so everybody has their own line. That's right. But That's I do believe that you have to try. Like, yes. I really do for me. Yes. That you have to try. Yes. And then if you find, you know, a wall, yes. then be like, okay, I'm out. Yes. But that the initial trying has to happen. Yeah, I, I love the way you say that because it there really is something about... Make an effort. Right. Just try. And then if you find that it is hurting your mental health, that's why I think a lot of people get messed up. I don't care what color you are. Yeah. I think we try and try and try and try and try and people are not responsive. So we just sort of shut down and we don't try at all. Right. Anybody, anywhere. Right. We well, it's like, like that learned helplessness paradigm. That's it. You know, that you bang your head and you bang your head and at a certain point you stop trying. That's right. Um, and then you don't give people a chance. That's right. Who you really should give a chance that's to. Right. That's and right. And I always think about that. You know, I always think about when I'm walking away from the last person mm-hmm. asking me, but what about black on black crime? Right. I'm like, okay, you know, like, is there a different angle I can come at this mm-hmm. by? Because I don't, part of it is that I do not want to leave that work to my friends of color. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't want like, it's not, that's mm-hmm. not right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I have to try because I don't want to keep the burden on them. Mm-hmm. But you get it though, Deborah. Like that's the thing. It's like you, you're enlightened. You're the like seriously. You're the one who understands. There's something I can do. There's a part that I can play. And I think we're even going back to like teenagers. I think where they get frustrated a lot of times with us as adults is they have a hard time finding that person who's willing to play that part. Right. So I feel like they. they I'm, I'm always thinking about this coping with our teenagers. I don't know that they can find the people sometimes. 
who are willing to play that part and run interference with them in a healthy way. I'm not talking about running interference, you stub your toe, oh, my baby, you know what I mean? I'm not talking about that, this I'm helicopter parent oh, stuff. Oh, you got to be on your test? I'm going to call Dr. Alfie. There you go. Her. Right, you're great. You got to get this straight because we cannot, <laughs> oh, somebody told me a couple weeks ago, A-minus, they couldn't go home with A-minus, and I was like, oh, my God, and it was a family of color, and I was like, Lord have mercy, so we got to do some work. But, you know, they need, so that's why it's so important to me to help them develop what you've talked about, like you need some resilience, you need some coping skills, right? You need something you can build on that feels familiar to you and that you can draw upon from within you. And what I always try to tell teenagers is you have it, right? You have it. We just have to help you tap into it because so many of them, I think, are so busy going 100 miles an hour. I tell kids all the time, you got to find your baseline. You need to know, like, you got to be still. Things happen so much faster now. Yes. I mean, like, literally, yes. I. I wake up on Monday, yes. I blink my eyes, yes. and it's Friday. Yes. It, yes. This, the amount that happens in a day yes. compared to even five years ago, yes. I think is really astonishing. Or I even think about like how we met. So like, even though it's been years, yeah. but it's like, like 20 years ago, well, now I don't even know when Twitter started, before there was a Twitter, how long might it have taken us to get together? Do you know what right, I mean? Because exactly. you can do stuff so quick. It's like, oh, I'm going to be there. Can you come? Okay. And then we're like, we're like, face. I'm like, oh my God, she's a real person. And she's so awesome. And she's beautiful and gorgeous. Right. And she's so kind. You know what I mean? Like it happens so instantaneously. And that happens for our young people. So they like, it's almost like, I don't think they sometimes know how to take a beat or how to take a breath or like sort of how to stop and stop all that stuff from swirling. Yeah. How to think slow it down. Yes. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to do it for themselves. Not all of them. You know, because my kids would be horrified if they heard me. you say about it's all teenagers. It's not all teenagers. It's not, but there are enough. Not all teenagers. Hashtag. There you go. Right. There you go. It's it's not, but there are enough who struggle with it that I really feel like part of my mission in life, and and you all do some of this too, is helping them figure out how to slow it down. Yeah. Well, and, and this is where you know I get I get a little annoyed with the. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, not you, never. <laughs> but with with sort of talking globally about mindfulness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, Lord. You know, yes. like, yes. so that's like the... That's the thing. Right. It's like, Ooh, what you know what you should mean? try? Yes. How about exactly. mindfulness? How do you implement yes. that? Yes. yes. It's not just... Yeah. It's a, a word. It's a yes. buzzword, right? Yes. And for... This is also interesting because looking at different populations yes. and different yes. people, yes. there really are some people who meditative practices and some of the mindfulness stuff is actually dissociating for them not good for them yeah you yes. know yes so so i think there there's so many different ways yes. that that folks can work on slowing things down but yes. i'm i'm a sensory motor kind of oriented person mm -hmm. so one of the things i like to to talk about with the kids that i see is using the physical, like physiological methods to slow things down Love and to this. be in your body. Okay. You know, and yeah. I don't care if it's running, yoga, but but when you're engaged, when you're fully engaged in an activity, yes. then you've got that mind-body connection going, yes. Yes. right? And yes. I know some people who they do their problem solving when they're running. Yes. Like, I can't run, I don't have the attentional, it's too <laughs> boring for me, yes. personally. Yes. But... People I know who love it, like it's a very meditative experience yes. for them. Yes. Right? That's yes. mindfulness. Yes, yes. Right? But yes. being able to be in your body, because one of the things we have in such a, a kind of a technologically oriented world that we have yeah. is that people aren't as physically engaged as they used to be. Yes. You know, I didn't play video games for six hours when I was a kid. I was outside running around. Yep. Now, if yep. I no, if I'd been able to play video games six hours a day <laughs> as a been kid, there. I would have been there. Up, yeah. I would have been there. Yeah. You know, but so, but but because we have kids who play video games or go online or you know that kind of stuff, it also means that we have to help structure it for them, mm -hmm. so that you know you can play a game for a certain amount of time or you can watch your YouTube's for a certain amount of time, and then like with literally with one of my kids, we're like. Go run around the block. Yes. Now, get up. <laughs> out. Right? Yes. Like, but, but, you know, as, as a parent, yes. that's something I need to do. Yes. Because if I just left it to my kids yes. to do whatever they want, yes. they'd just be laying on the floor yes. little potatoes. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and again, I subscribe to the idea of we have a brain because we need to move. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't need to move, we, didn't need, we don't need a brain. Mm -hmm. So 
movement and, and physiological functioning is just an important part of being in the world, mm -hmm. right? And so when you're looking at trying to engage with kids, mm -hmm. physical education, mm -hmm. sports, mm -hmm. can be a really helpful mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. to engage. Mm -hmm. And it's non-threatening in that sense. Yes. Oh, yeah. I love I love that you said that because you just made me feel better about because I'm one of these people I really love mindfulness. I'm really into it. But I like the idea of, you know, and that's how you know you're an anxious person, which I am, is mm -hmm. that like the struggle is, okay, if I'm running, I'm so, I'm so glad you gave me a gift I'm today. running instead I'm of running, doing something else I should be doing. That's it. I'm <laughs> yeah. running and I'm not <laughs> sitting crisscross applesauce, you know, with my fingers put together or hands at heart center saying namaste. Then yeah. I'm not practicing mindfulness, so I'm not meditating. Right. But I love that That's idea. moving meditation. Yes. I love it. So I'm going to take that and I'm going to use that. And I think, I think you're right. It's like we, we get on something like... 15 years ago, it was motivational interviewing. That was like the... Right? right? It was like every, right. every time I saw a grant, it was like, we need to do MI. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> no, not again. You know, there are other ways to do this, but now it is mindfulness. Everybody wants to talk about mindfulness, but not everybody knows how to do it. And like you said, I actually had an instance, because sometimes when I give talks, we practice like a one-minute mindfulness exercise. And I actually had somebody say that at the end of the talk. You know, right? Like, yeah. it upset them right. because it caused them to, they felt like they were out of body. Like, they yeah. were dissociating. I was like, oh, mm. I had never thought about that. I was like, oh, Forget my for God. for some people. Like, right. you have to, it has to be very That's right. individualized. That's right. To the I, person. I, I mm. agree 100%. So, I love this idea of being able to talk about the engagement and the focusing of in, engaging in an activity. That yeah. can be your version of mindfulness because you're focused. And I am one of those people. When I'm running... I do about three miles a day, about four or five days a week. I am working. That's my worry time. I'm working yeah. through problems while I'm out. You yeah. know what I mean? So you just normalize it for me. I'm so happy. Thank uh, you. I'm always happy to normalize things. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for me, like literally what I, I get too bored when I'm like, I'm alone with my thoughts and I'm like, oh, yeah, like I can't do it. So I need to do like yoga yes, or yeah. so I mix up yoga and circuit training yeah. where I have literally, I have my the, the guy who runs the class you know telling me to get off my butt and move because because if it was just me yeah. in the gym I'd be like well it's three I've done enough I'm gonna go sit down now so having somebody like organizing that for me and like my husband on the other hand he's a runner and yeah. he can he's super self-organized and he can run yeah on his own yeah. like literally for me I would run like five blocks and be like well that's good I think that's enough I got up, I got out. I'm done. I'm done. Right. What do you want? I, right, right. I, so I think also everybody has different structure needs, external structure needs, yeah. right? It's an, it's an executive function issue. Yeah. But I, the right. thing that I like that makes it universal is I think we all have those needs. We just have to yeah. find the way to tailor it to us. Right. And that's the same way I feel about, like, you know, the interventions that we use and the way that we do the work, which is why I also feel like it's not the most important thing for people to have, and people probably would kill me if they heard me say it. Well, when they hear me say it. Right. The most important thing is not the racial matching. Right. Because that's not necessarily the thing that's going to impart the wisdom. Right? What's well, it's not practical. Right. It, I mean, it's not, it's not I mean honestly. It's like, not. It's not going to happen. But the thing is, that to tailor the experience or to tailor, well, even if it's assessment or whether it's clinical care, whatever it is, it, it is to tailor to the person you're sitting in front of. But the way that you do that, you mm -hmm. have to have an awareness of yourself and who you are as a cultural being, and you have to have some level of awareness of who that person is sitting across from you, right? So that just little things like, you know, for a lot of my, it's not all, a lot of my Latino families, I can't do the treatment without having some level of interaction with the parents. Right. Like, I cannot just treat that sure. kid. Right. So like when and you do all like grandparents. That's right. So you got to be able to talk to them. I like that anyway. Yeah. Honestly, like, yeah. like back in the day when I did therapy, yeah. Um, if I was working with a kid, I was working with the parents yep. because that's the that's the environment that yes. that kid is yes. functioning that's in, holistic, and, if, yes. and I need to help the parents yes. manage help the, the kid. kid. Yes. yes, and and to try to do some reframing in terms of the behavior. So, yes. you know, one of the nice things about having a more sensory motor approach mm -hmm. is that when you're looking at discipline issues. Mm -hmm. Um, it can take away some of the intentionality mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the child's behavior, mm -hmm. right? You can say, well, you know, maybe they weren't trying to be disrespectful and a little jerk. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were in a state of sensory overwhelm because mm -hmm. they've been, it's just been too much yes. for too long. I love that. And they're melting. Yes. 
right? Yes. And training people about the difference between yes. a sensory meltdown yes. and a tantrum. Yes. Right? Because awesome. they're different. Yes. Right? You cannot reward or punish somebody out of a sensory meltdown. That's right. Like, it just isn't going to happen. That's right. So, learning how to make those distinctions mm-hmm. is very empowering for parents mm-hmm. because it makes them more effective mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to manage mm-hmm. their home environment mm-hmm. and it obviously it's better for the kid mm-hmm. because the kid's not feeling constantly misunderstood and punished mm-hmm. for things they can't help and that's translatable though yeah what you're saying that's behavioral so i can talk to i'm just thinking of now i'm gonna have to look at more of what you do we're gonna have to talk more because it helps me have a language for how to talk to especially my black and latino parents where they're like we're not, when I tell you to do it, it needs to happen. Oh, I mean, that's how I grew up. When right. I tell you to do it, it needs to happen. So if that child is having a sensory overload right. or meltdown, they have processing speed yes, issues and they don't turn yes. on a dime and do anything. Yes, yes. Right? Yes. Like, this again, I don't I don't diagnose people yes. with oppositional defiant disorder. Yes. Partly because if I can't locate it in the brain, yes. I ain't using it. Got it. Yes, yes. But also, when I see somebody diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder, I yes. think, well, this is somebody who is not sufficiently treated for yes. whatever neurodevelopmental issue they have yeah. who's being a pain in the butt to somebody. That's right. That's right. So I see that I see that diagnosis. I'm like, oh you're a pain in the butt to somebody, yes. obviously. Yes. Right. Which again, you know, has a set of problems. Yes. But to me, I'm like, okay, so what is the other thing going mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. that isn't fully understood? Mm-hmm. That if we could get it better understood mm-hmm then things would be going better. Oh, my God. But that just speaks to me because I always talk about how much more often black and Latino boys in particular are diagnosed with these disruptive behavior problems. Oh. Because it's perceptual. Yes. Right? So what I perceive as you being a pain in my rear, depending on who's engaging in the behavior, I might have a different perception of how I label that. Well, I I do contracts with school districts mm-hmm. for doing evaluations mm-hmm. periodically because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they don't want to put up with me too mm-hmm. much. <laughs> but, but one of the things I do is diagnose, mm-hmm. especially the African-American boys mm-hmm. they, who end up being described as conduct mm-hmm. problems and That's behavior it, problems when a lot of them are autistic. Yes. Yep. And because, well, black people don't have autism. That's right. right? That's what people think. That's so, right. So there's a huge percentage That's right. of oh, black yes. and Latino, and Latino, oh, yes. Latino boys too, and girls. Yes, yes. yes. I mean, oh, yes. we could talk hours we about really could. that. Um, but but it's super important. Like, yes. who gets what diagnosis? That's right. And what kind of treatment do they get? So right. if you you know, so is it punitive, just like remediation, or is it treatment? Right. Because right? that's not the same thing. So warehousing these kids is different than providing these kids with treatment. And then when they get treated, depending on what the label is, you're getting different kinds of treatment. And, what, and you know, again, autism is one of my specialties. Yes. And I'm not a super huge fan of straight ABA. Yes. Because I see adults who have PTSD because of the ABA they receive. Yes, you know? yes. So, I mean, behavioral interventions have yes. a place. That's but right. But... There, there are specific ways that the treatment yeah. protocols can be used yeah. that can be experienced as either very helpful in containing yeah. or punitive and punishing. Yes, that's it. That's right? it. Yes. And so, as, you know, and this again goes back to access yes. because I completely understand why, why people in the black community would be resistant to seeking treatment. That's right. If treatment is going to be trying to figure out better ways for them to fit into the dominant culture. That's right. That's right. You know, and, and that, that why would they want to do that? That's right. That's right, because their experience with dominant culture has not necessarily been positive. Right. Right? So you got right. parents dealing with that trauma. Right? It's intergenerational. So they had a difficult time, and then now the kid's having a difficult time. And the parent is not just thinking about what's going to happen to my kid. They're remembering what happened to them right. when they were going through it. So I think you're 100% correct. Right. I, just, and, I love how you phrase that. Right. And also the you know issues around medication. Yep. Oh, God. I mean, oh, not that's another couple it. of hours we're going to talk. Yes. So, yes. and again, if you know, with any understanding of the history, yes, that that it's completely understandable. Yes. Like I could say, oh my gosh, like your kid's ADHD is so severe, it would really be assisted by some stimulant medication. Probably, you might want to talk to somebody about that. Yeah. There are certain families I'm not going there. No, you can't. I can't. You can't unless you don't. Especially me. That's right. Because they, when they right. come in, that's what they think. Oh, you just trying to give me some meds. Right. You want to medicate my right. kid? You just want to throw pills at that. That's problem. it. That's it. That's it. So I also really like nutritional approaches with mm-hmm. people. So I do mm-hmm. that. People respond yeah. to that, I think. Especially, yeah. I think, in communities of color, especially Latino families. What I find is that yeah. nutritional component, because food is, I mean, in many cultures, but right. food is such a big part of the culture. But if you can talk to families about how nutrition, sleep, 
Oh, yeah. I took things about sleep a lot, like the child needs right? And then, like, you know, stuff that I know I do personally, like sugary sodas and, you know, all that kind of, like Cheetos and all, whatever. You yeah. Know, all these snack foods, like we just, how you can manage that differently. And it maybe that can make a huge it, difference. Yes, by just try it. And even the sleep issues. Yes. Like, well, I find that the kids today are even more sleep deprived. Oh, they're not sleeping. They're not. And it is devastating to yes. brain development yes. to yes. not be getting sufficient sleep. Yes. I mean, it's bad enough when you're an adult, yes. but but for kids, developing, yes, it's so important. And as we're finding, one of the talks at INS that I went to, uh, the Beatrice Luna's talk, mm-hmm. um, one of the things she was discussing was the increasing understanding of glia, you know, glial function, mm-hmm. both in terms of uh, myelination mm-hmm. of the brain mm-hmm. and also in terms of synaptogenesis. Mm-hmm. So there's a way that glial cells are always figuring out, mm-hmm. right, oh, I need to myelinate this, I need to like, get this thing going, mm-hmm. and then, oh, what, this one, I got I to cut here, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, but during adolescence is a super important time for that. Mm-hmm. And so if you're stressed out mm-hmm. and you're sleep seeing the depressed. news mm-hmm. and you're not, you're not getting enough sleep, mm-hmm. you're stressed out and then you see the news with all the high school shootings mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can that not affect your brain development? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I always think about what are you processing? Yeah. Right? My dad has this thing to talk about cuz like I said he's civil rights generation mm-hmm. and he says for a lot of young people of color, they can't just process what we would hope would be sort of normal day-to-day experiences of being a teenager. There's all this, oh, and I think about LGBTQ kids. Yeah. There's all this overlay of these other things. So your brain is processing, and I'm not a brain person like you are, but like you both are, but there's all this stuff that you're trying to process above and beyond right. what's supposed to be sort of normal development. Mm-hmm. How can that not affect you? Right, and and the, the disability piece is huge and yes. gets left out all the time. Yes. And a lot of the autistic people I work with mm-hmm. are non-gender conforming mm-hmm. and they've, mm-hmm. so they've got that whole mm-hmm. other additional mm-hmm. piece I mean mm-hmm. that's, that's to me why intersectionality is so important mm-hmm. and why people need to be actually trained about what intersectionality mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that it's not like mm-hmm. oppression Olympics mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. like well you know I'm I'm super more oppressed than you in this area so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's more about what are the areas that you sort of occupy Mm -hmm. and how does that relate to the person you're working with Mm -hmm. and how do you use that to understand them better Mm -hmm. to the best you can Mm -hmm. and to have them educate you Mm -hmm. as much as you're trying to help them Mm -hmm. right because then it's a relationship Mm -hmm. and you're not just a you know the therapy machine they're putting quarters Mm -hmm. into but don't you all I wonder do you all both think and put you on the spot and I wonder this aloud when you have that kind of approach Right? That sounds collaborative. Yeah. So that sounds like I have something to offer as the provider mm-hmm. in order to assessor, and you as the patient or the client have something to offer. I wonder how difficult it is for some of our for some of us to conceptualize things that way. I'm the provider, so I need to tell you what to do. Right. And you just are supposed to go and do it. And you just go do it. That's mm-hmm. it. That's I think it's a struggle. Yeah, it for is. Some of us. Well, it's part of the training too, right? It's a whole be yeah. the whole expert thing. I yeah, it, well, yeah. I know, and, and it's interesting because, you know, I think psychologists tend to think about it more as that collaborative relationship, okay. but what okay. we're making me just think of is working in a hospital setting yep. and kind of working with physicians yep. and maybe educating them a little bit about that, that how are you going to help this person problem solve their life so they can do the things that are important. Yes. Right? So, yes. you know, yes. um, you want them to change their diet completely, yes. and then they live in this yes. area where they don't food have desert. access yes. to desert, where yes. they don't well, have access to Well, apparently now they're it. just going to get, you know, st- a shelf-stable <laughs> milk. Blue apron style yeah. canned goods, right? You know, so, yeah. so, I mean, it's just made me, I know yeah. we have some doctors that are very much like, well, I don't understand. I told them to do this. Why aren't they doing that? They or are they're non-compliant. Or they're non-compliant. non-compliant. Yes. And, non-compliant. You know, yeah. Somebody yeah. has cystic fibrosis and yes. they're a young adult and they're dying and they have chosen consciously to be non-compliant because that's the life they've chosen and they're burnt out. But yes. then the physicians are saying, well, I think they're suicidal and trying to kill themselves. Like, yes. well, it's not really the same. Yeah. 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 It's, so, it's not yeah. the same. Um, 
So yeah, I feel like you know the folks I work with, it's it is hopefully that give and take and collaborative relationship. Yeah. But it's yeah. um, you know it's just interesting dynamic working in a medical. You're setting. right. Yeah. yeah, I work in a hospital too, and I, I mm-hmm. see a lot of that. And it's this. I love what you said about why I told them to do. So and so and so and so. I'm like, but I want my neurosurgeon to be utterly without empathy if they're going to cut on my brain. <laughs> <laughs> like you're cutting on my brain, I don't want you to have a feeling in your body. I right. want you to be as compartmentalized as possible, right. and then go ahead and you can cut on my brain. Right, right. right. Do I don't want to your talk heart with you. Rate I don't want to talk with you. Stress. Right? Right? Don't touch your feelings. Right? Right? Yes. I don't. Yes. I don't want to ever like have to have lunch with you. But yes. if you're going to cut on my brain, I yes. want you to be like an android. Right. 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 Yeah. I hear you. That's <laughs> hilarious. I love it. I love it. Okay, well, we are, we are at a little over an hour. Can you believe it? Yes. We can talk all day. Yes. But, you know, I don't know that everybody has the, you know, ability to listen all day. Gotcha. Although I would love yes. it if I could. So, but we're going to, we're going to kind of finish up here. Okay. So why don't we um, go around and say how people can reach you? Okay. So, Alfie. So, um, Twitter. I love Twitter. My handle is Dr. Alfie, D-R-A-L-F-I-E-E. Or people can email me at dralfie at gmail.com. Excellent. Jen, do you have uh, info? I, I don't have a Twitter now. I you don't? You got rid of it? Okay. I have it, it's but probably, I don't use it. It's probably, yeah, just as well, <laughs> so, honestly. I might need some amazing people if I did, though. So, you, right? you know, <laughs> honestly, I have to say, like, there are, it's, it's a huge trash fire in a lot of ways. <laughs> sure. But, but I know some of like literally my favorite people in my life I have me met too. through it. Me too. So well, and as you guys were talking, I was just thinking, twenty years ago, you probably never would have met. Nope. No, you never would have met. Nope. No way. Because I don't. You're go both to your psychologists. I don't go to the INS meetings. Right. right. You don't so, do APA. No. Either. Yeah. But yeah, no, we never would have. It's really. I mean, so to me, that's the that is the instant. golden quality of it yeah you know but, like I'm on but, Twitter emailing her on the way over here I'm like yeah, yeah. I'm almost there I'm 20 minutes you know what I mean like through Twitter like I didn't even need her yeah I mean I right. gave her my cell phone but she that's did. like just like an oh, added that's, that's an school. added yeah. 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 bureaucracy yeah. Yeah. you know and so and I'm um at Nebula 63 on Twitter I don't do Facebook because I've always thought it was a double so I've never used <laughs> Facebook um uh and um so that's it for today. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you. And uh, it's been a treat. And we'll see you next time. Bye.